Cause you had a bad day You had a bad day So we are in the book of Job. We're in a series that we're calling uh, Bad Days. Every one of us faces bad days. Bad days come uh, frequently. They come often in clumps, and they are not uh, rare things to us. We should expect them. The problem is not that we get bad days, although that's the problem that you might feel it. Uh, You might feel like the problem is that we get bad days. The real problem is how we deal with the bad days. Because every one of us gets them, how we deal with them is the real problem because how you deal with them could make them worse, how you deal with them could shorten them, how you deal with your bad days could change your perspective or someone else's heart, and so it makes a big difference how you deal with them. And so for the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at an Old Testament book called Job. Now, I want to remind you, the book of Job is a really ancient document. We've included it in our Bibles because of how important it has been throughout time. And it's based on some story that pre-exists even Moses. We're pretty sure from all the internal evidence in the book of Job that the story of Job is really, really, really old, but that the book was probably written around 600 years before Jesus. Now what makes it so fascinating and what makes it so good is that in the book of Job, we read an answer to the problem of suffering that no one else in ancient history or even modern history can tackle. No one else has ever said that this is the answer to the problem of suffering except for the book of Job. And so what we've been doing over the last couple of weeks is we've been trying to analyze what does this have to say to us. And the biggest, most important thing that you need to realize is that throughout human history, we have tried to answer the problem of suffering and pain by doing a few specific things. One, we might blame people. Well, the reason you're suffering is because of something wrong with you. Or the reason you're suffering is because of something wrong with someone else. And that other person influenced you. And so we might blame people. Sometimes if you've been in churches and you have a familiarity with church stuff, you might blame Satan. And you might say, the reason we're facing this suffering, the reason we're facing this hardship is because of Satan, because of the evil forces in this world. You might even just blame chance and happenstance. Well, you know what? God can't have his eye on everything. I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there. And so he can't be paying attention to everything. And so sometimes some things just slip on through. Or sometimes we make the excuse that God is letting this happen in your life because he's got a good plan for this pain in your life. And you might hear that. The problem with all of these things is that when you read the book of Job, it affirms to us that they're all wrong. All of these ideas for why we face suffering, they're all wrong. We come up with them as our explanations, and yet at the same time, they aren't satisfying. The book of Job gives us a totally different explanation that is actually satisfying. It's just not comfortable. Because in the book of Job, so far we've seen over the past couple of studies that we've done in it, we've seen this one concept bubble up to the surface. It's not comfortable but it is satisfying once you get it. It's this phrase. You might want to write this down. God is not fair, but he redeems. 
You might say God is not fair and he redeems, or you might say God is not fair and so he redeems, because all of those conjunctions can work in this sentence. God is not fair, he redeems. What I mean by that is that God is not in the business of trying to give you what you deserve. And that's a good thing for us. God is not in the business of trying to make sure you get what you deserve. God is in the business of trying to take what's broken and make it good. Take what's broken and make it right. Take what's happening in this world and make it beautiful. That's what God is in the process of doing. Let me show you some of the verses that we've looked at over the past couple weeks. This is one that we looked at last week from Job chapter 42. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, let me remind you, the major portion of this book is Job who's facing hardship and frustration and pain and disease and grief. And his friends show up and they start giving him all of the easy answers, all of the pat answers that I just went through. The answers that it's Job's fault or it's someone else's fault or it's Satan's fault or something along those lines. They're trying to give him all the easy answers. And God shows up at the end of the book and he says to Eliphaz and these other guys, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So what's the truth that Job has been speaking that God says is right as opposed to all these lies that the friends have been speaking? Here's one thing Job said from Job chapter 19. Let's put that up. It says, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Job's claim throughout the entire book is that he doesn't deserve the suffering he's facing and that God has quote-unquote wronged him. Now this is fascinating. This is not Job accusing God of being evil. This is not Job accusing God of being a sinner. This is Job accusing God of doing something wrong. And wrong is when the right thing is not done when the thing that makes sense is not done, when the thing that I expect should happen is not done, and when something else happens. And so Job is saying it's wrong, but I think what he's really saying, the words we might use today, is that God is just unfair. Job doesn't deserve this, and yet he's getting it. And so Job is accusing God of being at fault for his pain and his hardship. And later on, God says Job said the truth. Because if you know the backstory, you know that it was entirely God's decision. Oh yeah, Satan came and he gave an idea. He was like, hey, listen, you should test Job and do some things to him. But God takes complete ownership over what happens in those early chapters. He takes complete ownership. And the problem we have as human beings is it's hard for us to imagine that God is totally good, totally in charge, absolutely sovereign, and he knows everything that's going on in this world, and I still suffer. It's because God's not fair, but he redeems. Take a look at this next thing that Job says. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. Job has a perspective on eternity that he is still keeping his faith in a God who can redeem, even though his present is totally messed up. Now, we know the end of the story. 
Because see, 600 years after this was written, a couple thousand years after Job lived, or the story of Job got started about a couple thousand years after that, we know that Jesus came. And Jesus came to be our Savior, to be our Redeemer, to be the one who would bring us back into relationship with God and promise an eternity in heaven. We know that Jesus solves the problem spiritually in the past. And he will solve the problem physically in our future. And so we know the answer and we are waiting in hope for the day when Jesus comes again. But Job, all he has in his life is suffering and pain and hardship and confusion and faith. There's this last little piece that Job says, I will still believe that my Redeemer is there. And one of these days I will get to meet him and everything will be right. That's his faith. But you know what? In the story that we're going through, chapter 28 takes a break. Up until this point, Job's been complaining. The friends have been justifying God to Job. And then in Job's final speech, chapters 27 through like 30, in Job's final speech, he goes on a tirade and a rant of his final claims to innocence, except for 28. In chapter 28, he kind of takes an interlude, a pause, and he stops and he says, you know what? I think we're all pretty dumb. And he's like, what, in, what is wisdom really all about anyway? And he spends just one chapter thinking about this one thing. And it's in this one chapter that we see where the basis of his faith lies. If you have one of our Bibles, I invite you to turn there, page 242. We're going to look at Job chapter 28, but we're not going to read the entire thing because I don't have time today. I want to get into some of the uh, soapbox things. But uh, so anyway, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put some selections of Job 28 up on the screen so you can see what he's talking about. So let's start right up at the beginning. And Job says, there is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Mortals put an end to the darkness. They search out the farthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. What he says here is we humans are really amazing. We have found ways of getting stuff out of the earth that does things that only God does, like make light. We have found ways of making light in even the darkness. We have found ways of creating things by pulling them out of the ground. And Job is just so fascinated at human achievement. Look at this next one. He says, they tunnel through the rock. Their eyes see all its treasures. They search the sources of the rivers and bring hidden things to light. Human beings, Job says, have incredible knowledge. We've got this incredible ability to view the world and pull out of it information and to pull out of it things that are useful for us. And we have discovered so much truth by just looking at the world. There's a problem though. When you spend all your time looking at the world around you, the truth you get is always going to be limited to your own abilities or limited to the abilities of the other humans around you. And so what if humans are intrinsically limited? Well, duh, we are. We face hardship that we are, is outside of our control. 
We face difficulty. We face pain. These things are outside of our control. And so as a result, as human beings, we're definitely limited. And Job says, let me tell you about the limits. And let's look at this next thing. He says, but where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells, for he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under heaven. Job says, okay, you and I are limited to this tiny little perspective. I can see you, you can see me. I can see this room. I can see certain things. But listen, God sees the end from the beginning. God sees one end of the earth to the other. He sees everything under the heavens. God has a perspective that is so far beyond us. And so you know what? Human beings are limited. And God has something that is way above us. Humans might have understanding, but this is what Job says. That's not wisdom. Wisdom is something different. And so as he's talking in chapter 28, he's feeling his own limitations. And at the end of 28, verse 28, he says these words. He says, God said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. That phrase, the fear of the Lord is wisdom, or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is a common phrase in the Old Testament wisdom literature. Whenever the Bible is talking about wisdom, the foundation of all wisdom is that. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so at the end of chapter 28, verse 28, we get Job's ultimate foundation for his faith. Write this down. Job says, if I fear God... I will get wisdom. If I fear God, wisdom will follow. This is amazing. Because see, this is different from what the friends have said. What the friends have said is if you do good, blessings will follow. That's what they said. If you do good, blessings will follow. And God says, no, 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 that's wrong. But this one God said. Did you see that in verse 28? God is the one who said this to human beings. God said, Fearing me leads to wisdom. This is the guarantee. Not do good and you get blessing. The guarantee is fear God and you get wisdom. This is a real dangerous dangerous thing for us. Because us humans, when we hear this, we are likely to go in one of two different directions. Direction number one. Someone might say, I fear God and therefore whatever I think is right. You've heard people like this. They don't use these words, but they have spoken in such a way that you know that's what they're trying to communicate. Because I have a relationship with God, then I know I'm right. Phil Collins did a song about that. Well, Jesus, he knows me and he knows I'm right because I've been talking to Jesus all my life. This is the thing. People say, because I fear God, because I have a relationship with God, I can conclude that therefore I must have wisdom, and because I have wisdom, you need to listen to me. You're wrong. In fact, that's kind of what the friends have been saying to Job this whole time. They've been saying to Job, hey, listen, we know how the world works. We'll tell you what wisdom is. And God at the end says, no, you don't. You don't know it at all. So this is our first problem. As human beings, we say, as long as I get my religion right, 
then I can say whatever I want to say and I'll be right. And I'm telling you that's wrong. That's not where real wisdom is found. The second problem we have with this, though, is that sometimes we get this idea, and maybe not you because you guys are church people, but some people get this idea. If I have wisdom, then I don't need God. Because fearing the Lord leads to wisdom. Well, what if I already have wisdom? If I already have knowledge, if I already have understanding, then I don't need God, right? Because if the fear of God leads me to wisdom and I already have the wisdom, then I can just, I've already skipped that process. And so I don't need the fear of God anymore. And you'll hear people say this kind of stuff all the time. Because I know what I know, I can't believe in God. You've heard people say that. Because I've seen what I've seen, I can't believe in God. Because I've experienced what I've experienced, I can't put my faith in God. I could never believe in a God who would my experience. I can never believe in a God who would our experience. You know, that's what people would say. Because I know what I know, I can't believe in God. I already have wisdom, why should I fear Him? I'm going to tell you both of those things, both of those attitudes are completely wrong. And I want to help you understand that by today just talking a little bit about wisdom. So I'm stepping outside of Job 28. We're going to pull in some things from Job and from some other passages in the Bible because I just want to give you sort of a picture of what the difference is between heavenly wisdom and worldly wisdom, or heavenly wisdom and human wisdom, and to try to give us an idea of what real wisdom looks like. And the first principle I want to share with you is this. All truth came from God first. When I was in college, I went to a Christian school, Christian college, and we had a phrase at that school that was, all truth is God's truth. It was a good phrase, I liked it, but uh, of course, I thought it was missing something. Because I wanted to emphasize the fact that God had it first. Nothing is new to God. Nothing we learn is ever new to God. Nothing we discover is ever undiscovered by God. We might find truth, but God had it first. Let me just illustrate this. I can't prove this because it's obvious if you believe there is a God who created the world, then it's obvious. But I, so I can't prove it, but I can illustrate it. Let me show you a couple passages here. First of all, this one from Job, and it's from Job 28, which is the chapter we were just in. He's talking about the human beings, and it says, they search the sources of the rivers and bring hidden things to light. Now, you need to pay attention to this, because this does not say the human beings have invented the hidden things. And it doesn't say the human beings have invented the rivers. Human beings can only find the things. We can only discover the things. We can search for where that river comes from, and then once we find it, we're like, hey, I found it. We can climb to the top of Mount Everest, but we can't say we made Mount Everest. When we get to the place where we know the thing we want to know, after we reach that place, we have to acknowledge that truth was already there. I didn't invent the truth. I uncovered the truth. Take a look at this next one. This is also from Job, but not from chapter 28. Uh, Last week we could have read this, but I skipped over it. He says, he spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. He wraps up the waters in his clouds, yet the clouds do not burst under their weight. Now, why am I reading you this passage? Because this passage is something amazing to me. 
One, Job has just done some science, right? Look at that cloud thing. How did, tell me this. Um, let's imagine that you're living 4,000 years ago. How in your mind does rain happen? Does rain happen from clouds? I mean, we know that the clouds are dark. We know that clouds are associated with rain. We know there's no rain unless there are clouds. But it's not like the rain falls and the clouds disappear. Like you've noticed this, right? The more the rains fall, it's not like the clouds just, you know, fade away because all that water has come down. How would you conclude that the cloud was made of water or that the cloud even contained the water but Job somehow makes that conclusion. Now, we know that. We know that today. We've done the research, and we've sent things up into the clouds, and we've tested them. And we know, hey, they're made of water that is so small, it just floats up there. The clouds don't burst under their weight because each individual water droplet is so small, that water droplet is being held up by all the air molecules around it. And so each water droplet is effectively weightless. And that's why the clouds are weightless. We know this truth. We discovered this truth. But the truth was already there. In fact, the truth was already in the Bible. Oh, and, and let me say just one other thing about this particular verse. You, you should probably know that um, the book of Job is the only, and I mean the only ancient document that believes the earth is a thing in the middle of space. There, there's no other ancient document that believes the earth is just floating out there. You know, it's always on top of elephants who are on top of turtles who are on top of other turtles and it's turtles all the way down. You know, that's always, or it's some, some guy is holding up the earth on his, on his shoulder or something. That's kind of the way it always, it always works. The earth is always on something except for the book of Job, which says, no, the earth is just floating out there. God suspends the earth over nothing. How does God do that? I don't know. It just is. So we discover some science, and lo and behold, it's already in the text. Uh, you need to know, when we discover some scientific fact, there isn't a one of them yet that can actually contradict anything that you find in the Bible. In fact, a lot of the things we discover are like, oh, so you mean that's what it means when in Genesis chapter 1, God commands the earth to bring forth living animals? Or, you mean, that's what it means when Job says the earth is hanging on nothing? Science just helps us understand a little bit of the truth that God has already put into his word. He knew it first. Look at this next passage. In Job chapter 9, he says, if only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together. We looked at this last week. This is Job crying out to God, I just wish there were someone in between me and God who could be my mediator. And then we read in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. And it's like, wait a minute. Job asked for a mediator. Thousands of years later, there is one. That, my friends, is called prophecy. Okay, so we have science that is a new thing that we learn, but it's not actually new. God already knew it. Then there's prophecy. Prophecy is just God proving that he knows what's going to happen. And so he tells us in advance, and then later on it's like, oh my goodness, it happened. And there's so many evidences of that in the text of Scripture that the more we read passages in the Bible, the more we see, oh, you mean that was a prophecy of this. 
Let me show you another one. We looked at this last week, but I just want to highlight it for you again. Job is talking about how he feels God has oppressed him. And so he says, God has turned me over to the ungodly and thrown me into the clutches of the wicked. All was well with me, but he shattered me. He seized me by the neck and crushed me. He made me his target. His archers surround me. Without pity, he pierces my kidneys and spills my gall on the ground. Job is talking about wicked people attacking a righteous person and crushing him and piercing him. And lo and behold, in Isaiah 53, we see the same thing again. Look at this. It says, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Keep going. He says, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. Isaiah is talking about this as if it's already happened, and yet it hadn't yet. So Job says, righteous people get pierced and crushed. Isaiah says, a righteous person is going to be pierced and crushed. And then later on in the book of John, chapter 19, we read this. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And ultimately we say, oh, so that means when Jesus dies on the cross, it was fulfilling a prophecy from Isaiah, which was also reiterating a thing taught about in Job. All truth came from God first. Take a look at this next one, Psalm 19.1. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. I've, I've done this before. I, I decided not to do it today, but I could just stand up here and show you like 50 Hubble Space Telescope images and just be like not saying a word because I'm in awe when I see those things. But you know, I feel the same way when I read some passages of the Bible. Last week during my message, there was a verse that got up on the screen, and when I saw it on the screen, it was like something in my heart just swelled bigger, and I was like, oh, I'd like to stop talking to all of you for just a moment so I could stare at those words. There there are moments in my life when I see something that God has put into his word, and it strikes me with the kind of beauty that only only makes me close my mouth and be silent. This is the verse we looked at last week. It's Job 19. We looked at it today. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand on the earth. That statement of faith from Job, I don't know what it is. Something inside me just gets stricken with beauty. And whether it's scientific knowledge or whether it's some sort of prophecy about the future, or whether it's something that's just beautiful, you need to know that truth came from God first. The first and most important thing we have to understand when it comes to God's wisdom is that he had it all first. And so my conclusion is, I'm just going to go back to God first. I'm going to go back to God 
first because he had the wisdom first. He had the knowledge first. And so I'm going to go to him first and I'm going to see what he has to say. And then I'm going to let all the other things in my life filter through that lens of what does God say first. There's just a problem with that. I'm still a human being. And I have the limitations of human beings. And so sometimes when I look at God's truth, I see it through my eyes. And so I can't do it all by myself. I want to share with you three things about human wisdom that I think make it difficult for us to actually step into God's wisdom. The first thing that makes it difficult is that it is human to reject the God behind the truth. Our natural tendency is to discover truth, to pretend we're the first ones to figure it out, and then to run with it and say, look at all the truth that I have discovered. Someone might do some research and they can find that there was one time an animal that had a small beak, and then there was another time an animal that had a slightly larger beak, and that person can conclude that maybe these animals over time became these animals, and that person can say, I don't need God anymore, and so I'm done with that. And someone else might say, wait a minute, just because you found a process doesn't mean you found the cause. Just because you found a process doesn't mean you found the reason. Just because you found out some truth doesn't mean you invented the truth. We have a tendency to learn some truth and reject the God behind it. Take a look at this from Psalm 14. It says, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. There's... They're corrupt. Their deeds are vile and there's no one who does good. It's a foolish person who says, I've come up with this truth and now I don't need God anymore. So that's our first problem as human beings. Our second problem as human beings is that we have a tendency to look for truth that isn't actually there. Because we love it so much. We love it when we have the secret knowledge. Don't you love it when you've learned something that no one else knows? Don't you love it when you turn on YouTube and you hear someone talk about a conspiracy theory that you've never heard before? And you're like, ooh, this is some juicy stuff. And you don't believe it because you're not one of them. But you still are really interested in it. And you're like, oh, I'm learning some secrets of the world. Or don't you love it when you go to church and you hear the pastor on stage explain something about the Bible that you've never seen before and no one else has ever told you before and you're like wow now I've got the secret knowledge I feel so empowered I love finding truth that's not actually there because we don't care if it's actually truth or not we just love finding out the secrets the treasure that we have unburied that was never actually buried I'm going to race you through some passages in Job that illustrate this and so this is where I would get on a rant but I'm out of time and so I'm not going to rant about it and you're you're probably happy about that but here we go some passages in Job that I'm at least going to cover because when you read them you're going to be like wait a minute Jeff what about this one I'm going to tell you so here we go the pillars of the heavens quake aghast at his rebuke there you go the Bible tells us that the heavens are established on top of pillars and so you need to and we already looked at a passage earlier today that talked about the ends of the earth which means the earth must have ends see Jeff The Bible talks about a floating flat earth (laughs) because it's got pillars holding up the heavens and it's got ends of the earth, right? And so, okay, hang on a second here. Job is not trying to teach us that the heavens are held up by pillars. If I were to find some pillars that were holding up the heavens, then I would come back to Job and I'd be like, Job, you got it first. But... 
He is not trying to teach that. I'll prove that to you by looking at a similar passage from 2 Samuel. Take a look at 2 Samuel. It says, The valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord. Does God say that the earth has some foundations under it that's holding the earth up on top of these foundations? No, because look at the rest of it. It happens at the blast of breath from his nostrils. If you believe the earth is sitting on a foundation, you have to believe that God has a nose. I'm just saying, the two things are poetic. Accept it. It's fine to accept it. But now let's get back to Job because there are just some really fascinating passages in here that I'm going to absolutely race through because you're going to want to spend too much time on them and I'm going to tell you it's not worth your time. But here we go. Here we go from Job chapter 26. By God's power, this is all Job talking, by God's power he churned up the sea. By his wisdom he cut Rahab to pieces. By his breath the skies became fair and his hand pierced the gliding serpent. Job is making a reference to an ancient mythological creature known as Rahab. It was a serpent, a sea serpent, and it was the mythological symbol of evil in the primordial world. And so Job is saying that God is so powerful, he destroyed the chaos of the ancient world when he created the peaceful seas. God is so powerful that he did that. Is Job trying to tell us there actually was a sea serpent that existed before God created the world? No. He's making a reference to a myth in his day to express how powerful God is. That if that was a thing that was true, God wouldn't need any help. Because see, the ancient myths that had the Rahab creature also has a God named Tiamat who needs a lot of help to take care of it. Excuse me, Marduk. Tiamat's this creature. Uh, Marduk needs help from other gods to conquer this creature. But God doesn't need help. Look at this next one. This is actually something that God says. God says, look at the behemoth, which in Hebrew just means beast. That's all it means. Uh, Look at the beast, which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. Its tail sways like a cedar. The sinews of its thighs are close-knit. Its bones are tubes of bronze. Its limbs like rod of iron. Oh my goodness, what kind of animal eats plant material and yet has a tail as big as a tree and has uh, legs that are made like rods of iron. (gasps) Job's got a dinosaur. (laughs) The Bible has dinosaurs living at the same time as human beings. See, paleontologists, you're wrong. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is God talking about a mythological beast that he doesn't even give a name to. He just calls it the beast. And it's huge and it's giant. Keep going. Look at this next section. The lotuses conceal it in their shadow. A poplars, the poplars by the stream surround it. A raging river does not alarm it. It is secure, though the Jordan should surge against its mouth. Wait a minute. Now it's in a river and it's low enough that the river can hit its mouth? What's happening there? Some people think, oh, it's a hippopotamus. So who knows what, listen, what I'm going to tell you is I'm going to tell you, well, I don't know. That's what I'm going to say. I don't know what this deal is. What I know is God is saying to Job, did you make that? And Job is saying, nothing. 
Uh, one more, one more. It's called the Leviathan. It's also in Job. I want to show you this. Job says this in chapter 3. May those who curse days curse that day. Those who are ready to rouse Leviathan, he mentions it. And then God later on in, in the, I think it's chapter 42, he says, can you pull in Leviathan, 41 I think, can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook or a tie down its tongue with a rope? Its back has rows of shields tightly sealed together. Let's go on to the next one. He then says, flames stream from its mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from its nostrils as from a boiling pot over burning reeds. Its undersides are jagged pot shards leaving a trail in the mud like a threshing sledge. So here it is. God is talking about some animal called Leviathan. And Leviathan, again, was a mythological ancient sea creature that could churn up the waters and prove that it was super powerful over all these things. And so God is talking about this Leviathan. But wait a minute. This Leviathan has flames that come out of its mouth. And so this is a fire-breathing dragon. We're not just talking about dinosaurs anymore. We're now talking about fire-breathing dragons. They used to exist. Uh, no, no, because this fire-breathing dragon also trails itself along in the mud like it's a sled being pulled by someone. So either it's a crocodile who can breathe fire or it's a dragon who's really short because its belly is dragging along on the ground. Uh, Here's the deal, okay? For us, as human beings, we like to look at the things that are confusing and make up stuff and then tell people we've discovered the truth and be like, oh, I've learned all the secrets. And God says, "Ah, it's human to find truth where there isn't any. But it's also human to try to find the easy answers. That's what we looked at the last couple of weeks. The people around Job are trying to give him the easy answers. And Job is like, nope, I'm not going to go with the easy answers. So what do we do? God's truth was here first. But when we discover truth, we discover truth in all sorts of ways that cause us to lose track of the real truth. So what's the solution? Well, the solution was there in verse 28, wasn't it? When Job said, fearing God is the beginning of wisdom. I would write it this way. Wisdom comes in relationship to God. Knowledge can come from all sorts of ways. But wisdom comes from a relationship with God. When you get connected to God, when you get related to God, then the wisdom will follow. I don't have proof for this. I just have a promise. God gives us a promise that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear doesn't mean just being afraid. Fear means respect. Fear means reverence. Fear means obedience. Fear means honor. But here's the deal. I'm just going to tell you from my personal experience, and it's far too easy for my personal experience to just be anecdotal, to be shaded by my own prejudices. But I'll at least tell you this, and hopefully it'll make sense. I meet a lot of people when they're in bad places. And I meet a number of people when they're in good places. And I get the opportunity to counsel people who are going through difficult times, And I don't really get the opportunity a lot to counsel people who are going through great times. 
But I'll say this. In almost every case, when I encounter a person who has a tight relationship with God, they also have perspective and hope. And when I find someone who doesn't have a tight relationship with God, I find pessimism and selfishness. And it's just my own experience. But from the way I understand the way the world works, God's promise has consistently proven true. Those who fear God get wisdom to face even the worst of the bad days in a way that brings satisfaction. Maybe not comfort, but satisfaction. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.